0: All right, if you would turn with me into 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 8, then 12 through 19, then 50 through 57. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word, I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery— Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the words of our Lord. Y'all, when I
1: was in college, I took a documentary uh, class, a class that was looking into the genre of documentary uh, films. It was a fascinating class. And one of the things that the class was trying to establish for us is how compelling uh, the documentary uh, is to people. Um, you know, I remember watching a movie called The Thin Blue Line, uh, which was made back in the uh, 80s. And this was a, a crime reenactment drama uh, documentary uh, that was so well done that it actually caused uh, a judge in Texas to retry the case that had landed the person who had been jailed and caused them to get out. <laughs> it was such a vivid portrayal. And one of the things that we learned in this class is that documentaries come with this sort of um, air of credibility. You know what I'm talking about? Where for some reason the story means that much more to you when you find out what? That it really happened. It actually occurred. <clears throat> Paul wants for the Corinthian people to take the stories that he has told them about the gospel more like a documentary than like a fiction. In other words, what he's trying to do is to say, and really this is all of the gospel writers are trying to say, we're not telling you stuff that we just made up. We want you to actually know that this really happened. And they went to extraordinary lengths to demonstrate that very point. Uh, there's an old illustration that I heard from an old pastor friend of mine years ago that talked about the, um, the Wycliffe people. Do you know who the Wycliffe people are? Uh, these are the Bible translators. They're an organization that are trying to translate the Bible into every known human language on the face of the earth. And one particular uh, 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 translator had gone to a very remote tribe and started the process of translating the Bible. Well, when you start translating the Bible in a language that you yourself have to learn, it takes time. And what the translators did was, is they tended to go to the important passages first. And so the translators are trying to read this to these village people about, you know, uh, uh, the word of God and some of the stories of Jesus And the villagers just didn't ever react to it. They were all just like, hmm, hmm. Well, as time went on, the translators finally got to the unimportant passages of the Bible. For instance, like the genealogies at the beginning of Matthew, at the beginning of Luke. You know, the things where it talks about who begat who. (laughs) And all of a sudden, the chief of the village, as they began to read this, stopped the translator and said, wait, 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 wait. So you're saying these things really happened? (laughs) You would have thought it would have covered that. Look y'all, something happens when you suddenly realize that this is actually things that we believe really happen. And I won't lie to you. I feel almost a little bit silly here, you know, to stand up in front of a bunch of modern people and say, okay, like 2000 years ago, uh, there was this guy who was God, but he was came in the flesh. uh, And then he was executed and died. Uh, But later, he was completely resuscitated. I mean, unto anyone's ears, that would sound crazy. To anyone's ears. But I simply want you to grasp tonight that for generations of Christians, generations of Christians, beginning with our passage tonight, actually, believing in the resurrection of Jesus was essential And since we're looking this semester at why believing matters by looking at the Apostles' Creed, I simply want to appeal to you that it is an absolutely central tenet of the Christian faith. I want to look into it by asking three questions of this text, okay? First of all, did it really happen? Second of all, does it matter if it really happened? And then third of all, so what if it happened? Okay? Did it happen? Does it matter? And so what? Okay? All right, first of all, did it really happen? Look, y'all, Paul opens up with these Corinthian believers by saying to them that actually has some hard words for them. And one of the things that he's irritated about is the fact that a lot of them have walked into this issue of Christianity and said, who really cares or who really believes whether or not this Jesus person rose from the dead? They were ones that were doubting, and Paul is none too happy about it. And he goes directly in it. Now, there's a quick lesson right out of the gate here, and that's this. It has always been weird to say that someone rose from the dead. In our day, we tend to look back and say to ourselves, well, you know, these are those old timey people. And back in those days, they kind of believed in like weird mystical stuff. And it really wasn't weird for them to say that people rose from the dead. Look. That is absolutely historically untenable. It was just as strange for a dead person to come to life 2,000 years ago as it would if it happened today. I promise. The historical evidence illustrates that vividly. But I think there's actually more proof that we get. And um, if you've never gotten a chance to get a hold of Tim Keller's little book, Reason for God, if you're struggling with a lot of doubts about the Christian faith, this is a wonderful resource for you that you can go and look through some of this stuff. Keller mentions a handful of things that we have to think about when we begin to wrestle through this question of did it really happen? And I simply want to throw very quickly past you four things that he says. Okay? First thing, Jesus' resurrection was recorded, relatively speaking, very early. Now, look, if you're not paying attention, this is not going to see this because Paul is making a very dangerous claim in chapter 15, verse 6. Look at it again. Paul has the audacity to say that 500 people have actually seen Jesus' resurrection. But now you've got to understand something. If he claims that there are 500 people that saw it, that means that there are plenty of people who could very easily falsify that statement. In other words, these documents that were written, we believe were written somewhere around 25 to 35 years after the events actually happened. So if you're going to say that quickly that something happened, you've got a problem if you're making stuff up. All right? Let's say, for instance, that I wanted to start a new religion. Less-ism. And in order to get into this religion, you have to lose your voice. It's the one entry That was funnier than that. If you can't laugh at the groaning up here, then you're not paying attention. Anyway, what if I looked and I said, 25 years ago, there was a guy uh, in a fraternity here, and he died, but then he rose again, and we're all going to follow his teachings. Now, you would look and say, you're crazy. That's fine. But there would be a big problem with that because there are still people here who were alive 25 years ago and were here at Old Miss 25 years ago. I always think of Sparky Reardon, our dean of students. He was here. He would very easily look and say, you know, Les is crazy. I was here. That never happened. In other words, if you're going to make the claim that quickly, it's dangerous because you've got a lot of people that could come up and say, no, 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 I was in Jerusalem. That didn't happen. But here's the thing, the exact opposite happened. You would think that a movement could not get traction, but it did. It spread throughout the whole Roman world at that time. Why? In my opinion, the only way to credibly answer that question is if these things really happened, which brings me to the second point. The movement of Christianity, and this is not speculation. This is not religious preacher talk coming at you. It is a historically verifiable fact that Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire at that time with a speed that was, before that time, unknown in the ancient world. Unknown. In other words, the followers of Jesus kept this topic of the resurrection at the top of their list of subjects to talk about. So here's my question for you. If the resurrection is so poorly attested by history, then how do you account for the speed with which it spread through the Roman world? you follow the thinking there? In other words, what reason do you give for actually saying that it spread? This is what Keller says. He says, it is not enough to simply believe that Jesus did not rise from the dead. You then must come up with, listen, 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 a historically feasible alternative explanation for the birth of the church you realize that? In other words, what that means is, is within 300 to 400 years, Christianity had toppled the entire Roman Empire. That's a fact. <clears throat> How do you account for that? In other words, one particular um, <coughs> historian put it like this. He said, all attempts to discount the, re- the resurrection go against, they defy the evidence that we have in front of us. Thirdly, Jesus' followers who wrote down these accounts are dubious. Dubious. Now look, I want you to think about this. In almost every single account of Jesus' resurrection, one of the funnier things that nobody realizes because you've read these stories so many times you miss it, do you realize that when when the resurrection first happened, none of Jesus' followers believed it? including the people who had been told numerous times that they actually had done it. (laughs) And by the way, these were the people, follow me, who were writing these documents. They looked and said, when it first started, we did not believe it. In other words, if you were going to make up a story, why would you actually cast yourself in a bad light since you were the first ones to report the event? You see where I'm going? In other words, if you wanted for people to believe you, you would say, and from the very beginning we were totally certain we saw it, we were there. And yet these people readily say, and you know, to be honest with you, to begin with, we didn't believe it. What does that do? For a historian, if you're thinking through a historian's eyes, that lends great credibility to these accounts. Because it means that the authors of these accounts were willing to say, we'll make ourselves look bad as we report this. That lends credibility, y'all. That doesn't happen in other historical documents. The followers are dubious. Finally, fourthly, Jesus' resurrection was surprising. <laughs> Actually, anyone's resurrection would have been surprising. If you go back to Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 10, there's this story of the disciples going back down this mountain after they've seen Jesus transfigured into light. You remember this story? Like we talked about a couple weeks ago, where Jesus starts to glow. <laughs> And on their way down the mountain, they're discussing with each other what Jesus might mean by this whole rising from the dead business. What, what his church historian N.T. Wright says is that there is simply no historical parallels in the ancient Near Eastern world that would have made you think, boy, I really hope that our dead leader will rise from the dead. You follow me? Like, you can't go to other sources from Jesus' time and hear people saying, well, one day there's going to be somebody come, and he's going to be this great teacher, and he's going to die, but then he's going to rise from the dead. Nobody said that. There was nothing in their imaginations that would be there, historically speaking, to allow them to make this stuff up. Look, y'all, my first point is simply this. The Bible comes to us with the resurrection that— rings with credibility at least enough credibility for those of you who are wrestling with serious doubts about the truth claims of Christianity to deserve a little bit of your attention (laughs) how do you explain it it will not do and you do not have intellectual integrity if you look at this and just simply say well we know people don't rise from the dead anymore it will not do in the face of the evidence, you must come up with an alternate explanation because in the Bible's eyes, these things really happened. That's my first and longest point, point two, <laughs> second question. Okay, so does it matter? We've looked and said, did it happen? Now we've looked whether it matters. A bit of preventive medicine there. Does it matter? Because this is where, in my opinion, it gets really interesting because for a lot of people that I talk with, on a semi-regular basis, you know, we'll talk about the resurrection, and we'll talk about supernatural things that, you know, where, where, where miraculous things that you can't explain happen. But what's interesting is, is I get a reaction from a lot of people, especially from the sort of Christ-haunted South, as Flannery O'Connor said, that'll look and say, okay, sure, uh, I'll agree to you that there was a guy who lived 2,000 years ago. He died. He rose again. Big deal. What's the big deal? Which is a very strange sort of attitude. And Paul actually helps us deal with why it matters. (laughs) This is the reason why it matters whether it happens. And he gives us two points. Two very brief points. The first thing he says is, if this did not happen, you are still in your sins. Underline that verse. Underline that little phrase. What does he mean by in your sins? Keller has this wonderful illustration where he says, look, I want you to imagine for a minute that you're at your apartment, all right? Most of you live off campus when you're outside of your freshman year. Let's say you're in your apartment and all of a sudden the lights go out and not the whole neighborhood, just your house goes out. Your apartment's the only one that loses power. Well, your roommate and your friend looks at you and says, i tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go down to the utility company And I'm going to go and pay for your bill, which you've obviously not paid. I don't even know how much it is. I don't know if I have enough money or not, but I'm going to go take care of it. And you let your friend walk out the door. All of a sudden, a half hour later, the lights come back on. Okay? Now, here's my question to you. How do you know if your friend was able to pay the penalty for your lights going out? Think about that because the penalty has been canceled. You can look around you and say, the lights are on. It now, I can now see. (laughs) Things went out and now they've come back on. The resurrection is, follow me, to Jesus' death, what the lights coming back on in your apartment are to, to, to your friend paying the debt. Does that make sense? In other words, what Paul says is the way in which we know that we have any freedom from the guilt and the power and the presence and the reign of sin is if the resurrection really happened. Look, y'all, the whole hope of being able to engage in Christianity in the first place is done for if you don't have the resurrection. That's why it matters. Otherwise, the lights don't come on. (laughs) Secondly, though, he gives us another one. He says, if Jesus didn't rise, then your, here's the phrase, your faith is futile. The word there, futile, means empty. means a waste of time, right? Look, and since we've been focusing on faith this semester and believing, I really thought that this was interesting. Because believing in the resurrection means, listen to this, that when you go into the treasure chest, of the things that you hold the most dear in life, how I've tried to describe to you what believing is in the first place. When you go there, you're going to find what you need as long as the resurrection is in that chest. Did you catch that? If you don't have the resurrection, your faith is empty. Look, what a tragedy. What a tragedy. When in the evening, you come home after class, you're starving, hungry, you walk over to the refrigerator, you open it, and you look inside, and it's empty. Your trip to the kitchen was what? It was a waste of time. It was futile. (laughs) In other words, Paul is saying that as you go and try to draw resources off of your life, if there's no resurrection there, then you've wasted your time. It's a wasted trip. You've wasted energy. The, the, the things that you're doing in your life add up to nothing if there's no resurrection in there. Now, here's what's interesting. You came up empty in life, <laughs> Paul is saying. Now, here's what's interesting. I think at this stage, you should be asking yourself, okay, let's put the gun down. Um, it's a little over the top, all right? Not everybody believes like you believe, There's no need to come in and say that some weird mystical thing has to be a part of our believing. So what? What could it possibly matter if Jesus actually rose from the dead? And that brings me to my third question. Because it's very hard. In college, you may not yet be aware, although some of you are, you may not yet be aware why resurrection is that much of a big deal. Look, y'all, I want to pitch to you this one last thought. Resurrection means that when you go to the hunger satisfiers in your life, you recognize you have those things. And I'm not talking about in the refrigerator. I'm talking about spiritual resources to figure out what's going on in here. Why you feel like since you got here this semester, you're going crazy. Crazy. The Bible looks and says, if you've got the resurrection, whenever you go to the hunger satisfies fires in your heart, there will always be a bountiful feast there. There'll always be what you need as long as resurrection is there. Y'all look, for some reason, the historical fact of the resurrection completely energized these people. They walked out and died for this message. Go figure because of this. Why? Paul tells us in verses 50 through 57 that James just read for us. And I think there's at least two things here. The first thing he says is the reason why resurrection transforms us is because it tells us what we are in for. (laughs) Do you remember when you were a little kid and your big sister, I I have big sisters in my house. (coughs) And your big sister, you know, you hit her or something like that. And she looked at you and said, just wait till mom gets home and you're in for it. And all of a sudden, what? The gloom settled in. (gasps) She's going to tell. That's what big sisters do. They tell. I have a big sister at home. She tells on her little sister. In other words, what Paul is saying is, is your anticipation of the future, listen, 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 colors your today. Did you catch that? What you think is coming in your future casts light upon how you view today. And Paul looks and says that when we look and see that the resurrection is what it is, it shows us what we're in for. It looks and says, this is where we're headed. And you know what it looks like? You are going to be made like him. We will have bodies that will be like Jesus' body, resurrection bodies with unlimited potential that don't atrophy or get old and voice boxes that go away one day in resurrection. But our bodies will get stronger and smarter with every single passing day. Now look, we're going to talk a whole lot more about this in a couple of weeks when we get to that part of the Apostles' Creed that says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And it's really cool, so come back for that. But I simply want to suffice to say that there was something about these people looking and saying, eventually, this (laughs) is going to be done with, it's going to be new, it's going to be better, and it's going to be beautiful to me and to others. Secondly, the resurrection means—and this is the most important, and it's the reason why it's so hard to grasp—at your age, it means that death is not the last word. Look, y'all, I know for many of you, you've actually had some some experiences. Um, I heard just this last weekend about a family in Memphis who's going through an extraordinarily hard time about dealing with the loss of someone in death. And I know that it's kind of a downer, but it's my responsibility to get you ready for this. But there's coming a day when you will attend a funeral. It's fairly inevitable. And I promise you, there is nothing more awkward There's nothing more wrong about sitting there in a room and thinking, I was talking to this person a week ago. And something crawls up inside of you and just says, it feels horribly final. And it has the ability, death it does, to cast a shadow over everything. And it has the ability to look and say, if that's where we're all headed, Why try today? It is a powerful darkness that comes into the world that creates death. Ginger and I have worked ourselves into depressions often. (laughs) When after we got married, and I'm happy in my marriage. Are you happy in your marriage, my darling? She says she is. You want to be careful how you say that, man. We're so happy in our marriage. And she's like, no. But can I tell you something? There is going to come a day when I have to say goodbye to that woman. It's inevitable. Barring some fiery car crash over the edge of a cliff or something like that, where we both die at the same time. We're go- Everybody's like, I'm glad I came tonight. <laughs> but it strikes you Look, y'all, look around at the people who have meant the most to you. If death is the end, what does it matter? Look, y'all, from the second to the fourth centuries, plagues racked the Roman Empire with death Sometimes resulting in a solid one third of the entire population dying in the streets. But you want to know a crazy historical fact? Christians were the ones who marched into those neighborhoods, they were the ones who planted themselves in the midst of those villages to deal with the sick and the dying, at, even at the risk of their own lives. How do you explain that? That it's a historical fact that to the Roman Empire's amazement, it was Christians that went out and took care of the poor and were there with the dying. (laughs) It it just doesn't fit the historical facts. Look and say, you know, they must have been much nicer back then. No. I submit to you that this was a group of people that suddenly realized death is not the end of my story or the stories of those that I have lost who are near and dear to me. Look, y'all, Tolkien was the one <laughs> who illustrated it best in the character of little Samwise Gamgee who looks and faces what he thought was his own death and wakes up in the fields of Athelion into the eyes of Gandalf. And he looks up at Gandalf and he says, Gandalf, you're alive. I thought you were dead. But then again, I thought I was dead. Oh, will everything sad come untrue? See, Tolkien understood. (laughs) Tolkien understood that if all of a sudden death is conquered, it means, in the end, that you don't have a sad story. Now You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Where there are times that you look and you're thinking to yourself, what have I made of my life? What kind of destruction have I wrought in my own life? If the resurrection is true, if it really happened, then it means that your life has a happy ending and by God's grace, I don't have to say goodbye to that woman. I might have to say so long. But one day, we'll never have to say goodbye ever again. That's true for all of God's people. And they were empowered to go in and face death and say, what are you going to do? Your sting has been taken out. <laughs> you can't hurt me. Not in, the, not in the ultimate depths. You can. Look, even if you didn't think that this resurrection was true, don't you kind of wish that it was? It's an invitation. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you invite us into that? Lord Jesus, invite us into the reality that with every single day, and Lord Jesus, I, I'm, I'm so reminded right now of those who have already faced death. It's hard for me to scan this room And see the faces of those who have lost people so near and dear to them. And I don't know everybody in this room. Knowing the pale that it can cast over a life. Knowing the aching sort of loss that can come inside of a soul. Lord Jesus, would you tonight by your spirit convince us of the resurrection. Show us that there is resurrection in the world because you brought new birth into us that all of the dead places in us tonight can be overcame and can be conquered and can be brought back to life. Holy Spirit, you must do that. <laughs> dead souls do not resuscitate themselves. It is by your power. And So because we looked at your word tonight, would you change us? Maybe even some people for the first time. Draw us to yourself to see new life in a way in which we might not have before. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.